You are listening to Radio Free Science of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of an occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Times podcast. I'm Henry. I'm Scott. I'm Laura. And this week we have a guest who's going to be sitting in, the lovely ski bunny Joanne from Colorado. Hello, everyone. Good to have you with us, Joanne. So in our last podcast, we began our discussion of Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. We started by looking at the fact that there's a message in the book, not necessarily the code that, that Dan was talking about, but it's a book that raises certain questions about Christianity. And we talked about how this aspect of it bypasses people's logical minds because people look around them and they see the role of Christianity in the world and other religions in the world, and they see that they don't live up to what they pretend to be, that the world is not better off for 2,000 or more years of, of these teachings. And so they're posing questions. We then gave a brief overview of the history of Christianity, beginning with a, a brief look at the Q document, which is the document that scholars say is the source of the teachings of the man who has come to be known as Jesus. We then looked at the formation of Christianity under Constantine and some of the work of Graham Phillips in his book, the Marian Conspiracy, where he began looking at the question of the Grail and some dark secret that is supposedly being held in the secret library of the Vatican. And we finished by looking at or touching a bit on the Songs of Solomon and what the real meaning of that would be. And so that's what we'll pick up today. Thank you, Henry. Uh, yeah, the uh, the important thing that I think we we need to consider is the fact that people are becoming more and more aware that uh, the monotheistic religions, uh, Judaism, which gave birth to Christianity and and then also inspired Islam, have not uh, moved humanity any closer to finding the solutions to the pressing uh, problems of civilization, of man, his relationship to the earth, his relationship to other men, and his relationship to the cosmos. And that should be clear to pretty much anybody who looks out, out on the world today. That shouldn't be a shocking statement. Yeah, if you've got two neurons firing, you can see that we're standing on an abyss getting ready to fall in at any moment, and uh, it's not going to take too much to set off a global holocaust from which humanity may not emerge alive. So these are very, very important questions at this time, and people are very frightened inside themselves. Even the people who try to live in denial are aware, and more people are becoming aware each day and, and being forced to face the cold, hard facts as the economy tanks and and as the effects of the aggressive occupation of Iraq continue, and more and more people in the United States are having their children come home in boxes. Uh, soon it's going to be so that there won't be a family in the United States that doesn't have a relative or a friend who's come home in a box. And uh, when that happens, uh, I feel rather sorry for George Bush and the neocons because 
people are going to wake up. But in any event, we also talked last week about uh, the Pentagon strike and the fact that uh, our, our Pentagon strike video was being shown at the Cannes Film Festival right at the time that uh, George Bush and the neocons decided to release their amazing footage of what hit the Pentagon, you know, the the blurry little nose cone, which completely bombed. I think it did more to contribute to people being convinced that there was no Flight 77 at the Pentagon than anything else. But in any event... Well, Laura, you know that's just a setup, and they're going to come out with the tape that's got the clear images any day now. Oh, yeah, well, bring it on, as as George Bush would say. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, getting back to Dan Brown, Dan Brown, it, it, it's it's kind of a cipher because on the one hand, he wrote this book that really touches a lot of people and it touches them for reasons quite different from what what you might expect, as, as you outlined already. So the question is, why and how did this book become so wildly popular? Because quite frankly, as, as, as a lifelong reader of, you know, of some voluminous capacity, I have to say it's not really a very good book. Um, it has its moments that are, um, you know, that are, for, for somebody who wants some entertaining reading, it's, it, it has moments that are entertaining, but uh, it's, so, it's so implausible, and, and m- most of the dialogue and the activity is, is really completely cheesy, and for somebody who's familiar with the, with the facts of of the hidden history of the world, it's it's beyond cheesy. It's it's insulting to your <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> for example, we have here Dan Brown's famous tome, and I, re- I I I need to mention that I actually read this book on the train back from Paris uh, last year. We took our girls up to Paris to go to the Louvre. And we spent the day there, and I'd heard about the book. You know, several people had said, "Have you read the Da Vinci Code?" You know, no, I haven't read the Da Vinci Code. Da, da 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 da. And since they had mentioned that it was based on um, Lincoln, Lee, and Beijing's, uh Holy Blood, Holy Grail, I wasn't really too interested in reading it because I'd already read all of that material and had pretty much exploded it in some articles in a series of articles called the Grail Quest that we published on our website back 1999, 2000. I did a lot of research on the um, so-called Priory of Sion and came to the inescapable conclusion that it was just a big fraud. But I'll get into that in a minute because right now I want to tell you what Dan Brown wrote about the Priory of Sion. And believe me, the information that it was a fraud was available on the Internet and not just from my own articles because my own my articles were based on the research of, of some people who were on site, who went to the archives, who did some digging, did some, you know, firsthand observation and analysis. And there are several very fine books, uh, factual books written about it, which were available to Dan Brown. But he didn't bother to do his homework. This is what he wrote about well, his wife didn't bother to do it. Well, yeah, yeah. Anybody who was any anybody who was following the trial, you know, where uh, Lincoln Lee and Beijing were suing Dan Brown for plagiarism, are probably aware that uh, that it was pretty well concluded by the judge that he got most of his stuff from his wife, who did read Holy Blood, Holy Grail. So yeah, he did steal some ideas. But you know, that's how fiction goes. You know, people. You can't own these ideas, and it would only be if he lifted the actual text, uh, you know, bodily from their book and used it. And and he he didn't do that. He he wrote a fiction novel 
based on their research, and, and it was perfectly legitimate for him to do that. But at the same time, he certainly should have given them a little more credit, and he should have at least been honest about it and, and, and admitted where he got it from. But in any event, this is what he says about the Priory of Sion. Right in the beginning of the book, big, bold letters, it says, Fact. The Priory of Sion, a European secret society founded in 1099, is a real organization. In 1975, Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale discovered parchments known as Les Dossiers Secrets, identifying numerous members of the Priory of Sion, including Sir Isaac Newton, Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. The Vatican Prelature, known as Opus D, is that day, Henry? Opus D is a deeply devout Catholic sect that has been the topic of recent controversy due to reports of brainwashing, coercion, and a dangerous practice known as corporeal or corporal mortification. Opus D has just completed construction of a 47 million national headquarters at 243 Lexington Avenue in New York City. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. And that is this this whole statement that he prefaces with this big, bold word, fact, is pure horseshit. (laughs) There's no other word for it. It's it's horse hockey, people. Because, number one, the Priory of Sion is not a European secret society founded in 1099. Priory of Sion was a fraud perpetrated by a small-time crook in France named of Pierre Plantard, who later added de Saint-Clair to his name to give himself airs. As I said, the information on this is posted in great detail in several in a series of articles called The Grail Quest on our website at www.cassiopeia.org. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is this issue about Opus D. Now, Opus D, I'm not going to say too much about that because I'll let Opus D do their own defense. Uh, I'm not into defending Catholic organizations since I'm totally against the whole, you know, the Christian fraud anyway. So, Mm -hmm. but but let's say that they're they probably are a cult. They probably are doing weird stuff. You know, anybody who gets into you know whipping themselves or, or you know, wearing hair shirts or total celibacy and think it's going to get them to, to heaven are a little weird in my book. So well, It was also founded at, under Franco in, in Spain and had very, very close ties to the fascists. So, Yeah, that tells us something, too. When he talks about the descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate, like I said... Now there may be some groups that engage in these so-called secret rituals, like the like the kinky sex ritual that uh, he describes somewhere around the middle of the book that that the poor um, heroine Sophie witnesses her grandfather performing with some you know, um, uh, goddess receptacle. <laughs> 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 Having a little hard time with terminology here tonight. Sorry. Um, Yes, there are some groups that uh, get into this kind of weird stuff. There are some groups that get into stuff that is so weird that, you know, maybe one of these days we'll do an entire show just on some of the sick sick crap that goes around and passes as occultism. But basically, as far as the Christian mythos, it has nothing to do with it. Absolutely nothing. 
But it's got a lot to do with occultism. Well, <laughs> uh, it depends in, on in your... what in what occultism is known as today in the. Yeah, well, as as we mentioned uh, last week, according to the the most definitive scholarly research, which has been put together and written about by Burton Mack in in two books, one's called. Uh, who wrote the New Testament, and the other one is called The Lost Gospel, The Q Document, and The Origins of Christianity. Mac pretty well establishes that, first of all, uh, whoever the man around whom the Jesus legend was formed was, first of all, he wasn't Jewish. He was probably Greek or at least, you know, strongly Hellenic in his background. He was a a cynic philosopher, or along the lines of the cynic philosopher. Interestingly, Mack comments on the fact that there is a strong influence of the so-called idea of the kingdom of God threading its way through the material of the first and earliest layer of the Q document, which he doesn't quite understand. But if you think about it in terms of, of a group of people who more or less were ready to chuck out the whole religious uh, shtick that they were dealing with at that time from all different points of view and the whole social thing and uh, make a social statement and experiment with new ways of being, new ways of relating to each other, and at the same time retain a certain spirituality because, you know, as, as, as you might think, that the cynic philosophers pretty much tossed out spirituality too. They were very very realist, rationalist, uh, you know, what existed was what you could see, feel, taste, touch, smell. And they weren't too much uh, inclined to make spiritual speculations. But if you take any... They were the uh, Richard Dawkins of the era. Yeah, yeah, they they were, uh, you know, blind watchmaker types. But uh, whoever was behind this material that came to be known as the Q document... They were, in a sense, very realistic and very scientific and very much involved in observing their reality and experimenting with new ways and new relationships. And at the same time, they had an unusual concept called the kingdom of God, which, as you know, has been quoted, it was within. It was a spiritual condition. So that is a little bit unusual. However, it's not so unusual when you begin to study some of the other spiritual doctrines that have existed continuously for these past 2,000 years or more in certain areas of Eastern Europe, uh, moving even to uh, Central Asia. For example, the influence that later uh, generated the Cathar beliefs came from that area of the world, they, they, from Bulgaria, from, you know... The Bogomils. The Bogomils, yes. And there were strong similarities between that and some of the Sufi ideas, and I think I mentioned uh, the Sufi Shaikh Ibn al-Arabi last week. And then we find that in the construction of the layers of Christianity, that the ideas of the crucified dying and resurrecting God were added to the mix 
several layers after the first layer of Q and have been identified as originating from northern Syria, which is moving in that direction. Now, if you understand the ancient uh, Siberian shamanic practices, you know that the the death of the of the uh, external self and the birth of the spiritual self, the descent to the underworld or the the ascent to the heavens uh, via a ladder uh, on a horse, by a tree, by some sort of uh, divine sickness where you would fall sick for a number of days and then rise from your bed a transformed being. You know, all of those are evident in this myth of Jesus, the dying God who who died and was buried for three days and resurrected. And they all, all of this, this type of um, spiritual initiatic practice is evident in this myth. So the first problem you have is when people like uh, Lincoln Lee and Beijing come along and they assume that there is any part of this myth that is historical and then begin to try to find uh, you know, customs or historic, you know, actual historical linchpins on which to hang a real history to try to prove that, you know, a man named Jesus exists, that he was a Jew, that he married Mary Magdalene, that they had children, or that she escaped to France or wherever and gave birth to a child who then became the progenitor of the Merovingians. You know, all of this is pure nonsense. And also, you have to remember that a lot of what they were writing was based on ideas of that sort that were propagated by a fraud, a complete fraud. And if you don't believe this is a fraud, you really need to do some research. And we need to go back and we need to say this and repeat it and say it clearly. The entire story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, being arrested, being scourged, being taken before Pontius Pilate, being taken up the mount carrying his cross, being crucified, all of that is bogus. As history. As history. However, it is a stark mythical representation of a true initiatic practice. And that initiatic practice can be found in bits and pieces and traces in some of the most ancient teachings that still continue to exist on this planet. And those teachings, that initiatic practice, apparently, from the best we can determine, actually does lead to a heightened state of being, a permanent change in the being, and even, in fact, possibly what we would call superhuman powers. So don't knock that part of it and don't think that it doesn't have a seriously important significance, but just do not take it for history, and forget the whole thing about Jesus being a Jew, Jesus being marrying Mary Magdalene, and having children, etc. And, and let me just say something about that. Uh, when I first read uh, Lincoln Lee and Bajan's book, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and they repeated some of their stories about uh, the myths of Mary Magdalene coming to France and, and bearing the child of Jesus and so on and so forth, and that this was something that was well-known in France to the French. I was a little curious about that, because at that time, and still, my husband has a colleague uh, who lives in Marseille and has lived in Marseille nearly all his life. He's a, he's a scientist, 
And he's also very interested in history. He's kind of an interesting scientist, and he's, he's very funny. He actually looks and talks a little bit like Yul Brenner did in his heyday, so he's a lot of fun to talk to. But he's a very serious mathematician. Stop laughing, Henry. It's true. <laughs> I know him. I know it's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did, did I peg him? Does he not look you like him. Yul Brenner? You pegged him. Yeah, I mean, you just almost expect him to, you know, stand up, shave his head, and say, shall we dance, you know, <laughs> and, and, do, and do the whole King and I thing. But in any event, Robert uh, was kind enough to answer some of my questions about this, and, and his information was based on living on, on on site and in the place and having studied these things himself and been interested in them. We should note that uh, the legends that, the, the authors of the Holy Bread and the Holy Grail talk about have Mary Magdalene showing up in France near Marseille. So right. it, it's right in that area. Right. And, and But then they completely distort these things because the story actually is, uh, which, you know, the French of that region have told and retold for centuries, that, yes, Mary Magdalene showed up in a boat with another Mary, uh, Mary the Egyptian, uh, and St. Maximin. And that she went to an area not too far from Marseille, which is now it's called St. Maximin. And she went to live in a cave, became a, a recluse or penitent, and lived her life in prayer and penitence and died there. And supposedly her her bones were later found and identified as hers. I you know, seriously doubt. I think they date to the second century. I've been to see it. I took some photographs. I've got some photo albums of these things on our website. But in any event, there is no legend of Mary Magdalene coming to France and having a child and that that child you know, went on to become the founder of the Merovingian dynasty. And on the subject of the Merovingians... <laughs> Whoa. The Merovingians, uh, the long-haired priest kings. Now, that goes in a whole different direction. You know, they were obviously Frankish, and they had the whole long hair thing, and supposedly they had some sort of power, some ability to touch and heal. And all kinds of other legends rose up about them, but if you actually read, you know, go to the sources and read what Gregory of Tours wrote about these early Merovingians, you come immediately to the idea that these are people you wouldn't invite into your home. <laughs> now, now, the fact is that, you know, one, at one point in my life, I, I got heavily into genealogy and discovered that, uh, you know, I myself descend from some of these people through my Percy ancestors and, and several other branches. And reading about them was quite interesting. But, you know, I realized, gee, you know, I, I, who would want to have that blood in their veins? These, these, these people were nuts. <laughs> I mean, they were patricidal, matricidal, fratricidal. You know, what's what's killing your sister? Sistercidal? <laughs> they were evil people. Who would want to be related to these people? Who would want to bring them back? <laughs> so we're getting back to the to the issue of the of the initiatic secret that is encoded in Christianity. There is a teaching that has survived for over two thousand years, and it has been transmitted through the oral traditions of the Eastern Orthodox Church. These are traditions that are known to a number of uh, 
of teachers of some importance in the Eastern European area. Some of them are Russian, Bulgarian, etc. George Gurdjieff was in touch with some part of this tradition and incorporated it into his experimental promulgation of, of the ideas that are behind this tradition. Boris Moraviev was a little more familiar with the direct tradition, uh, possibly not more familiar, but at least he transmitted the the tradition itself from the uh, from the monks on the island of Athos, and writing his three volume compendium entitled Gnosis One, Two, and Three. Figure that one out. He talks about uh, the the fact that. The human being has, in his ordinary state, three centers. Gurdjieff talks about the centers also in similar terms. And these centers are the thinking, the emotional, and the moving center. I suppose if, if somebody was really interested in trying to figure out how they relate to Freudian or Jungian psychology, you know, they could have fun with that, but I don't think it's terribly important. And that there were three higher centers, the higher intellect, the higher emotional, and then what was called, in a sense, the the sexual center. And I told you we were going to talk about sex, but I don't think it's going to be quite the way you want to hear it. But, but the thing is, is that the higher intellect relates to the thought that gives form to the formlessness of the sexual energy or the creative feminine energy. And the higher thought or the intellect was depicted as light, and this is how it was depicted in the Sufi teachings. And the sexual center or the feminine creative principle was depicted as as black. And the action of the light upon the, or the light of thought or the word, you know, the word, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word, the light, acts upon matter in a creative way and matter as the Divine Mother, and I believe I read the passages on that from Ibn Ibn al-Arabi last week, the Divine Mother, is that which receives the impression and essentially gives birth to the forms that are contained in the idea of the light. Well, applying that to a human being, you have the possibility of uniting the light, the father, and the mother, the black magnetic center, in your uh, spiritual makeup and seating this in your physical body, which is essentially what is being asked for when the Lord's Prayer says, you know, thy kingdom come, remember the kingdom of God is within, thy will be done on earth, on earth being the sexual center, the black the black part of the feminine uh, creative center on earth as it is in heaven, heaven being the higher intellect. So bringing the higher intellect together with the sexual center or the mother and seating it into the physical body was the act or the process or the initiatic uh, sequence that would make a human being into literally a, a superman as much as can be possible in this reality because, of course, there are going to be certain limitations by virtue of the the, the circuitry 
that the human body is capable of, of carrying, and that depends, of course, upon DNA. So naturally there is a family bloodline, there is a DNA connection that is necessary to be able to accomplish this to any great degree, because if you don't have the DNA potential to carry those higher circuits of energy, you're going to burn yourself out. But in any event, this process is a very is a very precise process. It has been carried as, as an oral tradition for thousands of years. It is probably the exact tradition that was behind the imagery of the of the mother being impregnated from heaven, giving birth to the divine child, who then was crucified and after three days arose, because this actually describes the process of the initiation of the coming to be of the bringing together of the of the higher intellect and the feminine creative principle of the higher centers and then marrying them or bringing them into being or into manifestation in your physical body. Now, we're, we get a little more precise about these things uh, in some of the articles on our website and in my book, The Secret History of the World, I talk about it at some length. And towards the end of the book, I begin to put the things together and give rather explicit details about the process itself. But it's not a process that you can necessarily undertake on your own. It, it, it has happened. It can happen. This is what the ancient alchemists were doing when they were transmuting lead into gold. It had nothing to do with transmuting you know, physical lead into physical gold. It had to do with this process of seating the higher centers with the lower centers into the human body. Part of the process of doing this is the merging of the lower emotional center with the higher emotional center. They, these two centers merge. And that is the is the, uh, shall we say, the crossroad or the or the link that you have the lower moving, which is uh, corresponds to the higher sexual center and then the lower intellect that corresponds to the higher intellect. And then you have the two emotional centers, lower emotional and higher emotional. When the lower emotional and the higher emotional merge, you then end up with a figure five. You have the two intellectual centers and the sexual and moving center and then in the center, you have the merged emotional centers, which, you know, causes them all to function together. In other words, you live in this world, but you are no longer of it. So this is the secret. The uh, The doing of it is is a bit more problematical because it's not something that, that you just decide to do. You can't get it by meditating on it. You can't do it by... Uh, by any of the, the the normal processes that have been promulgated for a very long time as as the ways to higher spirituality, uh, if it were possible to do it that way, people would have been doing it a lot, and the world wouldn't be in the condition it's in. So to, you know, take that one to the bank. So the interesting thing about this is is that uh, as y'all know, back in 1994, I I succeeded after a couple of years of experimenting and contacting myself in the future, so to say, you know, the Cassiopeian transmissions, you know, ourselves in the future. And they began to talk about many things that relate specifically to this idea, to these teachings. And they helped us to put together the elements from all the various philosophies and uh, 
esoteric teachings that were out there. They helped us to look for the clues uh, and to discover these things and to put together a cohesive and coherent narrative of exactly what is going on on this planet, what has been going on on this planet, what probably is going to happen on this planet, and what we can do about it, if anything, which primarily has to do with uh, going through this process, each of us individually, this this, uh, being born, working, uh, being crucified, laying dormant for three days, 96 hours, however many, then being uh, resurrected. So that's the important message behind Christianity. Christianity, uh, in this sense, esoteric Christianity, has probably existed for many, many thousands of years, 20, 25,000. There's, there's evidence that I present in my book, Secret History of the World, that, that suggests that this is the practice that was the power behind the megalith builders, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the groups of people who erected the blanket of megaliths that extends all over Europe, Eastern Europe, into into Russia and, and in many other places around the planet. So, if you're interested in finding out, you know, the truth about these things, and you, you probably will want to get and read this book that that I have put together after you know 35 years of research. And the final thing I want to say about it is, is as I was studying through these things, as I was collecting all of this information and, you know, the issue of da Vinci, and this, uh, this is kind of an interesting thing because, like I said, I was, reading, I was reading the da Vinci Code on the train when we were coming back from our trip to Paris. I had taken it with me, even though I had resisted reading it up to that point, I had taken it with me as a travel read, and on our way home, after we had spent the day in the Louvre, I picked up this book and started reading it. And I thought, well, this is really interesting because, of course, at the time I had no idea that that the opening scenes of the book were, were in the Louvre right where I had just been. So I found that to be pretty interesting. And when I got home, I began to dig into some of the some of the ideas and began to look at Leonardo da Vinci just a little bit more closely. And that's when I discovered the links between Leonardo da Vinci and Marguerite of Navarre, who was married to a grandson of a very famous Cathar, a great-grandson, as the case may be, who also was a uh, a patron of Nostradamus, of uh, Rabelais, and several other people that, uh, that the great alchemist Fulcanelli mentions in his mysterious book, The Mystery of the Cathedrals. Also, Marguerite was one of the sponsors of the great cathedral in Osh. And I have a photo essay of the cathedral on my website. If you just go to www.cassiopeia.org, click on the sitemap link, and then you look for the photo essays, you'll find the, the link to the essay about Osh Cathedral. Because in Osh Cathedral, there is actually a series of statues and Based on my research, I believe that Marguerite was very much influenced by Leonardo da Vinci, who spent his last years in France with her brother and with her. And she sponsored the building of this cathedral and the artwork that went into it. I think that Leonardo was very influential in the creation of the art that's in this cathedral. So there's a series of statues. It's called the Burial of Christ. And the Burial of Christ depicts a woman with a crown of thorns standing in a position 
of honor next to the body of Christ. And to her right is the mother. And at the feet is Mary Magdalene. But it is quite clear from this statue, from this series of figures in this gilded statue, that Mary Magdalene is not the wife of Jesus. If anything, she might have been a daughter because it's a family scene and she is in a position that a a daughter would assume. There's the mother, there's the alleged wife, which we have to understand is metaphorical because the wife, remember, is is the sexual center, which is black, and she's standing there holding the crown of thorns, which is you know, the suffering of the initiatic process, which has long been depicted as, as, a, as a dismemberment, you know, boiling in a cauldron. The most ancient uh, representations are, are the boiling in the cauldron, the cauldrons of regeneration of, uh, of the ancient Celts. So this woman is there depicting a certain symbolic event, not necessarily an actual wife, but it's quite clear that in the 16th century, when this artwork was being created, that there was an awareness that there was some mysterious thing about the so-called family of Jesus, about the uh, uh, the religious depiction of the crucifixion, and someone was trying to encode this in this cathedral in Osh. The next thing I noticed as I continued to ponder uh, the works of Leonardo da Vinci and read everything on Leonardo that I could get my hands on as well as translations of his own writings. It's it's unfortunate that so much that he wrote was scattered far and wide and has never been fully reassembled. But there are several volumes that contain his notes and his writings. And what I noticed was, as I was looking at The Last Supper, you know, there's been much made about the peculiar positioning of the hands of uh, the various individuals sitting at the table, especially the hand that bends backward with the knife in it. Uh, some people have tried to say that there that this is the hand that doesn't belong there, that it doesn't belong to any of the figures there because it's such an odd gesture and a very awkward way to twist an arm. However, if you, can, if you look through all of Leonardo's uh, sketches and the studies that he did for this, uh, this great painting in Milan, you'll find that he actually did a study for this particular arm, and it does survive, so it is quite clearly an arm that does belong to uh, the one who has been identified as the Apostle Peter. I've described all of this in in some detail in an article on our website, uh, which is called uh, the... What what, what, what did I title it? Fulcanelli and... You changed the title three or four times. Oh, well, it has full Canelli and Da Vinci Vinci Code in it. So just look for Da Vinci Code on the site map page and you'll find it. Because I actually show the images and show show the studies that Leonardo worked from. So Leonardo was connected to Marguerite of Navarre, who sponsored the building of Osh Cathedral. Uh, She was also a sponsor of Nostradamus and Rabelais, who were both mentioned by the alchemist Fulcanelli and his works, The Mystery of the Cathedrals, and, and also his, uh, his book, Dwellings of the Philosophers. Uh, Fulcanelli was also a close associate of Camille Flammarion, and Flammarion was a very good friend and supporter of Allan Kardec, who was a great um, researcher what? into spiritism. And Henry, do you have some details on Kardec and Flammarion that you have gleaned from some of the French books that are not available in English? Can you tell us a little bit more about him? In the mid-19th century, 
in the 1850s. As there was in the United States, there was table tappings. There was an interest in spiritism. Allan Kardec became interested in it uh, in the 1850s and took it upon himself to attempt to organize and publish some of the communications that had been received. And he brought to this a critical eye and wouldn't accept just anything that was going on. One of the things that they would use would be a, sometimes a planchette that was similar to the kinds of uh, devices that Laura was using in the Cassiopeian transmissions. Uh, other times it was automatic writings. But he never took what was said as gospel. He always sat down and did what research he could to confirm or reject, and then he would compile this information. During this period of the 1850s and 1860s in France, there were hundreds of thousands of people involved in this, and Kardec organized networks of these people throughout France. It was very strong in the working class, Kardec himself died in 1869, and as we've seen so often, these uh, kind of movements break up and splinter. But Camille Flammarion, who became a very well-known French astronomer, was very closely involved with this work in the 1860s. And we know that there is a connection between Flammarion and Fulcanelli, or Jules Viol. Because as Patrick Riviera has... Uh, written and analyzed and researched quite brilliantly, the true identity of Fulcanelli is indeed Jules Viol, the great French physicist. And so we see a link between Kardec to Flammarion to Fulcanelli, Jules Viol. Who then wrote about Rabelais and cathedrals and actually, as I demonstrate in my article, gave the direct clue to us to lead us to Osh Cathedral, where we can view this astonishing statuary, this assembly of persons that is called the Burial of Christ, not to mention the fabulous 18 windows of Arnaud de Molle. And if you th do a little anagram playing with this word Arnaud de Molle, you come up with, I am Le Leonardo. <laughs> so... <laughs> so. I, I, I've done it in my article. Uh, I can't remember the exact exact words that I came up with, but uh, uh, there are some very strong connections. And then when you circle these unusual hands in Leonardo's great work, The Last Supper, and you draw lines between them, what you have is the most amazing figure, the exact, and I mean exact, depiction of the constellation Cassiopeia. The Solution to the Da Vinci Code. The Solution to the Da Vinci Code is Cassiopeia. There you have it, folks. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week. For more information, visit our website, www.signs-of-the-times.org. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.